Hands can tell you a lot about a person. If I meet you and you have dirty hands with grease under your fingernails, my first assumption is you are a hard-working mechanic. If I meet you and you have soft, tender, silky hands and skin and pristinely painted fingernails, my assumption is that you've just been to the spa and you hope that lasts a long time. Think of uh, little tiny, tiny hands groping and grasping for something to hang on to. Those belong to a, a little baby. We have a few little babies with us today, right? G grasping for security. You can tell a lot about someone by their hands. God knows this, so that's why in the Bible, God tells us about his hands and his hope that by telling us about his hands, we have a better grasp and understanding of who he is and what he does and how he works. So pay attention closely today to this section of God's Word from 1 Peter chapter 5 and do this. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. It's a hand that does two things. It's a hand, first of all, that disciplines. There's two myths when it comes to God's disciplining hand, and I want to debunk them both this morning. The first is this. The first is that this, this misunderstanding and misconception that God's discipline is the same as God's wrath and punishment. And it, it's not. It's entirely different. Those are two realities, but they're dished out to two different kind of people. So, God's wrath and punishment actually already was in, unleashed on his own son at the cross when Jesus, the Bible sometimes says, drank the cup of God's wrath to the last drop for us. It says, there's nothing left in the cup of God's anger and wrath and punishment. There's nothing left for sinners in there. It's already done. The price has been paid in Jesus. Now, if you don't want Jesus and don't want that price that he paid, well, that, fine, then you can pay the price for God's wrath. And that will happen to anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. But as believers, we're here today to remind ourselves that the junk and the pain and the suffering and the discomfort and the inconvenience that happens in our lives is not God's anger at you or God punishing you for something. That's done long ago. It was done at the cross. Then you ask, well, okay, so it was done at the cross, then why does it sometimes feel like God is dumping his fury and his anger out at me? Why, why do I go through these sufferings? And the Apostle Peter, that's where he is. He's writing this letter to Christians in the early church who were suffering in, in different ways, a lot of times suffering for their faith. And so Peter writes, yeah, there's all kinds of Christians undergoing the same kind of sufferings that we are. Every Christian experiences troubles. So don't let that worry you that you're experiencing troubles in your life. This, it's a sinful world. We're not in heaven yet. Plus, you, when you believe and you follow God's way, you're going to run up against resistance. From the world around you, even from your own heart, you're going to run up against resistance when you follow God's ways. So when you experience a discomfort or pain, the, the message today is that that's not punishment, it's discipline from God. It's not a lightning bolt that God hurls down at you, trying to kill you and you're dodging God everywhere. It's, it's an electrical surge of God's power 
Sure, it's a zap. But it's not a lightning bolt. It's not meant to hurt you. It's meant to help you. And uh, that electrical surge might be a shock. God might be trying to shock you into a sudden, a, a, a repentant awareness of some sin in your life and, and the significance of God's forgiveness and his love for you. Reality. Or that might, that electrical surge from God, right, coming your way, might be um, maybe just a, a, a current of spiritual insight that God gives to your brain and, and brings a thought or an idea to mind that, that wouldn't come from anywhere else other than God. And, and he's like plugging you in to his word and his truth. Sometimes that electrical surge from God might jolt you with some quick searing pain. Sometimes it might jail you for a, a long-term persistent, almost feeling like you're in prison in some kind of suffering or needing to put up with someone or something and you want to escape and you can't. It's, it's all God's work in your life and, it, and the reason it hurts or it's, it's not comfortable or it's painful because it's change. God's wanting you to change, to improve, to grow, to come closer to Him, to be safer in your faith. And anytime there's change, change involves pain. It involves doing something different. And so change is hard. Change is painful. But I tell you what, God's not going to give up on you and he's going to insist on, on making this change in your life because he loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. And he wants you to grow. So he creates these these moments of discomfort or inconvenience or even pain and suffering. Now, guess what? The devil's on the sidelines, and the devil's seeing this now, this work in your life, as God is creating this surge, this zap, this jolt, this, this uh, prison of suffering, and he's, God's pulling you, pushing you, extending you, stretching you, and the devil says, yeah, that, now there's an open door for me. This is an opportunity for me to step right in because they're experiencing pain and discomfort. They're going to be looking for some kind of way to deal with this pain and suffering and inconvenience. So that's why the Bible here says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And when he does that, what what he's promising you is relief. So, right, understand this correctly. When the devil's mode of operating is not roaring. This verse says he is a roaring lion, but what he does is that he prowls. So it wants us to understand how powerful he is. He can roar like the king of the jungle, and he can scare people like a nasty barking dog. But his mode of operation is not confronting you with his roar. His mode of operation is prowling like a lion in the grass, secretive, deceitful, wanting to sneak attack. And here's his sneak attack when you are suffering. Pain, discomfort, inconvenience. Here's what he, here's what he does. He'll, he'll put this thought in your head, and it'll sound something like this. I can get you out of this. I, I, 
I can get you out of this. There's a way out, you know. I can bring you relief and it can come this quickly. Who is, what kind of God do you worship anyway who, who allows you such pain? What kind of God who, who promises you good things would make bad things happen in your life? What, you want to follow a God like that? I can give you something better. Why don't you, uh, why don't, here, take this. Take this sin. And uh, if you take it, it'll get better, I promise. You'll, you'll feel better right away. You'll escape the pain. Take this uh, overuse of alcohol. That'll numb it and you won't, you won't feel the pain anymore. Take this quick look at porn. Man, that'll, that'll just jolt you in a second. You'll feel really good about yourself then. That person on the screen just wants to be with you. Take this impulsive spending. That'll just that'll give you something that you've always wanted, and man, that'll make you feel good. How about this secret sin that your friends do behind closed doors because it's so gross and dirty, but you can do it too, and you can be one of the gang. Then you'll feel accepted. Here, and Satan is there prowling and deceiving. And you and I right now, in one way, in each of our lives, in a different way, are listening to the devil's lies in some way, seeking rescue from some pain or discomfort or unhappiness. That's how he works. You need to identify what that lie is that you're believing from the devil and then ask, what does God want me to believe? What is the truth of God here? What would God want me to do? Chances are you know what that is, but you're scared to do it. And so we need to, we need to face the reality and, and uh, be real about this. Here's what, here's what this section of Scripture says. It says, Be alert and of sober mind. Resist him, the devil, standing firm in the faith. Right? Sober up! Get a clue, the Bible says. Don't believe that the lies of the devil. You know what the truth of God is. Be alert. Be active. And then here's a second myth when it comes to God's discipline. The second myth is this. Okay, I'm just going to do nothing. I'm going to let go and let God. The, the Bible doesn't say do nothing when it comes to living your Christian faith. So, especially we Lutherans and Christians, you know, we've got to be careful about this because it is true that we do nothing when it comes to God saving us and bringing us into his kingdom. And it's, it's a passive event. The Bible calls it being born again. How much did you do to get born? Nothing. You probably made it harder by coming out sideways. Being born is a passive experience. So when we're born again, we're born into God's kingdom... We're acted upon. We're passive, and it's a gift. We do nothing for it. That's why even the most squirrely character can get into heaven. And that's me, and you, and that's good. We do nothing. It's a gift. But once we have that gift, once that is given to us, then God says, how are you using that gift how is that gift changing your life? What are you doing with what I've given you? And that's where 
We don't do nothing. We resist Him, standing firm in the faith. And that resistance may make you tired. All right. The resistance may make you worn out. That may make, make you put things on your calendar that, that part of you doesn't want to get busy with. But you need to if you're resisting the devil. Resisting, that's like, you know, standing in those, you're, you're on the coast, you know, and you're walking in the waves and further about into the waves and also that, that undertow kind of comes and tries to take your ankles out. That's what that resistance is like. There, you have to put some pressure against that so it doesn't wipe you out. Resist him. Be active. But remember, when we're active, we're not active alone. When you, when you are active and you do something, do something with God on your side. Turn to him. The Bible here puts it this way. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So when you're resisting... And it hurts, and the pain is too much. You need, go to God with that pain. Don't give up. And just say to God, God, it hurts. That's all you need to say. When, when the suffering is more than you bargained for, and you're having to hold on and hold on, and you, just, you can't hold on anymore, and, and, and there's something going on and you're confused and you don't know what it is and you want to know what it is and you just don't. It's confusing. Just give that to God and say, God, I'm, I'm confused. What, what would you have me do? And be ready for the answer. When you're overwhelmed and you don't have the strength to go on, you don't have, maybe you've, you've lost your passion and you just, you just don't have the what, it, what God wants from you. Just go to, throw it on him and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I don't, I don't have the passion anymore. Why can you do that? Because God's not going to bust you up. He, he cares for you. He wants you to come to him and say, I can't do this. I can't handle it. I'm scared. Like Jesus in Gethsemane. I'm scared. And then trust him with the answer. I read something incredible when, uh, when studying this verse, and I want to share it with you. Uh, it really helped crystallize anxiety for me. Uh, and it's this. When it comes to anxiety, and some of you struggle with it more than others, okay? But we all do to a little degree. Uh, some a lot. Here's something helpful when it comes to anxiety and, and dealing with that and casting it on God. Instead of the mindset that says, I'm overwhelmed by my anxiety. I want you to compare that to this. My anxiety is trying to overwhelm me. And I want you to see the difference. I am overwhelmed by my anxiety. You know what that makes you? It makes you a helpless victim. And it makes you the drama. What you need to do is not be your own drama when anxiety comes your way. Not be the drama. Then don't, don't be the anxiety. Step outside of the anxiety, outside of yourself, and be the audience to the drama. And look at what anxiety is trying to do to you, and then say, anxiety, you're trying to get me. 
You're trying to overwhelm me. I'm going to cast you on God. Boom, there you go. God, you take it. And then you're not a helpless victim, but you're someone whom God has empowered with choice and, and power in yourself, and you take your anxiety and, and just step outside of it. Don't, don't let it be you. Very similar would be like saying, I am cancer. When you have cancer, no, you're not. You need to stop. Don't personalize that. Step outside of it and say, cancer, you're trying to get me. I'm going to take you, and I have the power of choice, and I'm not a victim, and I'm going to, do the, I'm going to give you to my medical team. I'm going to give you to God. See, so don't become your anxiety. Cast it on God, and he can take care of it. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. I'd say the perfect picture of a disciplining hand is the picture of a parent. All right? So we all have had parents. Some of you are parents. A parent purposely tosses the ball a little too high so that junior has to jump up and try to and learn that he can jump and catch. A parent purposely backs up in the swimming pool with hands stretched out. Come on, come on, you can jump. To let the child right gain confidence in the water, or you or you take your baby and you know you just purposely shove them underwater so they learn what the water is like. You blow on their face first, but right. <laughs> Someone in our congregation recently did that and posted it on Facebook. I won't say, I won't tell you who it is, but it's Jason Roderick. <laughs> right, teaching teaching your, your kids what the water is. And uh, probably, you know, Max probably a little scared when that happened, but he did fine. Uh, so just a perfect picture of, of a parent disciplining a child. God says he's our father. Look in Hebrews chapter 12. There's a great section there about our father disciplining us for our good. And so Jesus became the parent, the teacher, the instructor. And he wanted to stretch Peter, who wrote these words for us today. And uh, he asked Peter to walk on water. Why? Because Jesus wanted more faith for Peter than he had. And he wanted more courage for Peter than he had. And he wanted more humility for Peter than he had. And so Jesus says, come. Peter, come. I want you closer to me in your faith, in your courage, in your strength, in your humility. And this is in the middle of a storm. Why is it that God always asks us to do things right in the middle of a storm? Why can't he ask us when things are calm and controlled and we're ready? No. At the worst time, when everything else is going crazy in our lives, then we, we have to do something else for God, something unimaginable, almost impossible. Yeah, that's what God does. Because he wants you to come closer to him with more faith and more courage and more strength and more humility. And did that scenario work for Peter? When Jesus said, come, and he got out of the boat during the storm, waves higher than his head, well, he took a few steps and he was doing fine, but then he sank. And Jesus reaches out his hand, the Bible says, and caught him and said... Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Was that a successful walking adventure for Peter?
Absolutely. He failed forward. It was either going to be Peter's faith that sprung into action and kept him on water and, and let him walk all the way to Jesus. And they have a little party and then they walk back to the boat or call other disciples and eventually all, all of them are out there. I don't know, but that would have been success or faith could be success, but forgiveness can be success too. And those hands of Jesus reached out in forgiveness to this disciple of little faith. Why did you doubt? But I got you. Come on up here, you little rascal. Let's get back to the boat. Those hands of Jesus. I, I want us to have a greater appreciation for the hands of Jesus and what they do in our lives as we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. And so I, I say that so that you learn to trust them more and to love them more and to see how they're at work in your lives. So let's do a little review of Jesus' hands. And let's think for a moment of Jesus' hands. You can take a visual tour of some of the pictures up here of, of Jesus in his hands. And I'm going to talk us through them a little bit. Oh, this multimedia approach to Jesus in his hands. Think of Jesus' infant hands, little tiny hands, grasping, one grasping Mary's little finger, and another grasping a piece of straw that has animal saliva and other excrement on it. And dealing with the reality, welcome to our planet. God is here in the flesh. And those little tiny hands that grew into 12-year-old hands as Jesus learned to work with wood from his father Joseph and became a carpenter like his father Joseph. And those hands, and maybe they started getting calluses on them. And maybe he got a splinter from the wood and it caused his finger to bleed. Not the, not the last time his hands would bleed from wood, right? And then those hands that would grow up even more and, and start, to, start to heal people and they would, they would touch a blind man and give him his sight back and they would heal a leper and they would reach out and even raise people from the dead. Those caring, miraculous hands bringing the power and mercy of God from heaven to this earth. Hands that soon then went into Gethsemane and prayed in the garden. Because this, this Savior, this God-man was scared for you. Could he do this for you? Could he really save you? Was there another way? Hands that were moments later bound by ropes because of the betrayal and hate of man threatened by him, wanting him to go away, bound and led to trial to fake trials, to pretty much a lynching. And after those trials were over, given a staff pretending he was a king and mocked by Roman soldiers who spit on him and beat him, and he is standing with as much might as he has left, using the staff so he doesn't fall over until he's given a bigger piece of wood, his own cross, to carry from the city, outside the city wall, to the place of crucifixion. Splinter on flesh. Blisters. Flesh splitting open, grabbing the cross, carrying it until he can carry it no more. Spread out onto that beam. Clang. 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 Hammer on nail. 
his hands pierced, impaled to the cross. He cries out in pain. And that's not the worst of it. Because he's raised up with his hands spread out, his hands filled with something more gruesome than the most graphic images you could look at of the crucifixion. I put a couple up here that aren't even close to being really bad. You've maybe seen worse. And when you see those gross, gruesome pictures of Jesus being crucified, you might turn away. That's what the Father did. The Father turned away. It was so gruesome because all of your sins were there in the hands of his own Son and the sins of the world. And the Father turned away and he removed his care and he, he removed it. He removed it at that one moment. And the wrath and punishment of God against sin, and there's always wrath and punishment of God against sin, but it was dispensed right there on the cross in that moment. As those hands that had created mighty mountains and, and can summon legions of angels, as those hands gave themselves up in humility and died. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he said. And the Father was ready to, to accept and to embrace that payment for sin as long as it meant the death of his son. And his son died. And the earth became dark and shook. And at that moment, you were saved. Three days later... Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to his disciples, right? Look at my hands and my feet, he said. Touch me and see, it is I myself. To prove to them that the devil did not win, that death did not win, that sin did not win. Forty days later, he raises those scarred hands in blessing and says to you and to me and all believers, don't be afraid. And now, right now, today, the Bible says in Romans 8, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Why didn't the hands of the Father deliver His Son from the suffering and pain and death? Well, they did. The Father did deliver His Son. He didn't, uh, he didn't remove the suffering. He didn't change the circumstances. The, the Father didn't, didn't cancel the pain. But he did remove his son's anxiety. And he did change Jesus' heart. And he, did ca he canceled his fear. So when you think... Why doesn't, the, why doesn't my Heavenly Father deliver me from my pain and suffering? Oh, He does. Through Jesus' hands. The most powerful deliverance from any of our pain and suffering is the forgiveness of sins that Jesus won for us. It's for sure. And the ultimate deliverance that we will spend eternity with Him in heaven. And then all that other stuff in life, the, the migraines that won't go away, or just the daily headache you have commuting to work. 
all the other pain, the, the extra expense that it costs for you to manage your budget in a wise way that can be full of joyful generosity and share with others. Raising kids in, in the knowledge and instruction of God and the work that that takes. All of that. The Father's hands do deliver you. Possibly removing the pain, possibly changing the circumstances, possibly canceling the suffering, but also possibly changing your heart and leaving you in the circumstances. Giving you confidence and faith to make it through. That's what we pray. When we pray, deliver us from evil. We're praying like those believers in the book of Acts. We're praying, God, you don't have to necessarily change the circumstances. You don't have to take away the storm, but calm the storm in my heart. If you want to change the circumstances, God, great. But I'm good with you not changing them and with you giving me strength and greater faith. God, deliver us from evil and ultimately take us to heaven to live with you forever. What do your hands look like? They might be dirty. They might be tender and sweet. They might have calluses. They might not. But if they look like this, if they look like this, God will deliver you from all evil now and forever. That's what this final verse of the, this text says. Listen to this. I want you to hear it. The last thing I say in the sermon. Here it is. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.